0: It seems like yesterday when I used to browse the aisles of my local Blockbuster along Peachtree Drive in Columbia, Missouri, big store, friendly service, and a huge selection, looking for movies was almost as fun as watching them. So what caused Blockbuster to fail? You may think you know, and if you said Netflix, think again. Our guest is Alan Payne, who had a front-row seat to Blockbuster's lackluster leadership while he was posting big sales numbers and profits at his Blockbuster stores. Alan was also featured on the 2020 Netflix documentary, The Last Blockbuster, and his new book is Built to Fail, and I'm certain the late Siskel and Ebert would give two big thumbs up on this conversation where Alan explains the main reasons Blockbuster Failed. I'm Mark Gandy, and this is CFO Bookshelf. In Alan Payne's book, Built to Fail, he has a quote at the beginning from Quentin Tarantino, and he says of the video store, a cultural thing that was lost and nothing worthwhile has taken its place. To tell you the truth, I don't know why it was lost. So, Alan is Quentin Tarantino. Is he right?
1: It, it's it's a it's a tough question, and and I think most people will find my answer maybe ludicrous. But I think there still could be a few stores around if had it been managed properly, uh, because the the social aspect of it was so important to so many people that had it been done properly i think there still could be a few around now there there's no question that streaming was going to take over the the home entertainment business and then there was nothing blockbuster or anybody else could do to stop that from happening but you know there's a, there's a lot of businesses that have gone uh, uh, you know primarily through the internet but there's still retail faces out there. So I I think I think absolutely there could be a few Blockbuster stores in key demographic areas. Yeah, I do. And I've heard that from too many people that missed it and would go if there was one there.
0: I I would. I would just and and most of us still have DVD players. The the big question would be is
1: could a video store acquire enough content to be viable now Good point. because because the studios you know they're so into their streaming businesses now, all individually would they would they be cooperative in in creating the licensing rights or or selling the dVDs or however they chose to do it to video store owners who could do it you know would, could they make the numbers work so we don't know the answer to that, but uh
0: when I met you through email and when you said yes, would like to be on the show i shared a list with you about companies that had failed. So this is a topic that is actually near and dear to my heart. Not that I love failure. I like studying the reasons why businesses fail. Now, this is my opinion. Feel free to push back, Alan. I think your book, From Beginning to End, should be or could be used in every MBA program in America. Thoughts?
1: Well that's that's a compliment. I uh I the amazing thing to me about the blockbuster story is that there were five different CEOs and every one of them failed in their own individual ways because the 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 state of the of the business was different at each <laughs> juncture. And you know the con- the common thread to me, through the whole thing was CEOs that didn't have an interest in digging into the detail of the business. They kept trying to find big 30,000 foot answers to questions that were a lot more complex than that. You know, they could make a big decision and launch a marketing program to turn around something that, that, that was trying to fix a fundamental flaw in the stores. And they kept trying to do that, and i i and frankly, I think a lot of it was particularly in the case of John Antioca, who was there for the longest. it was just mental laziness uh, I don't think he I don't think he had an interest a real genuine interest in what made the stores work, and every time he was presented with a problem, he just tried to throw out some big idea that uh that really didn't fit the problem and and you know. People might argue that with me, but I, I would I would like for somebody to point out one thing that Blockbuster ever did on any kind of significant scale that worked other than opening a bunch of stores.
0: You, There's you nothing. There's took, nothing. took the words out of my mouth. They were really <laughs> good at growing big and fast, but that even goes back to uh, the original founder, or I guess he didn't actually found Blockbuster, but... Uh, he, he's the one who took it from 18 stores to 3000. We're going to be unpacking this book, but just really quickly, I'm sure people who run into you, they start thinking, Oh, fill in the blank. I don't, I I don't want to ask a leading question, but I think I know what most people say was the reason blockbuster failed in your opinion. And you've heard it all. What do you think is the biggest myth? about blockbuster failing
1: oh there's no question the biggest myth about blockbuster and the reason they failed is is netflix streaming uh and if, and if you and if you ask anyone today you know nine times out of ten that's going to be the answer you get well it was a it was inevitable right netflix killed it because blockbuster didn't didn't adapt to streaming but the the truth is is that blockbuster going back to the beginning, never successfully competed with a legitimate competitor ever. And this could go all the way back to the 80s. Uh, and, in, and then as you get into the 90s, when Hollywood Video, and that's another story in itself, when Hollywood Video started growing, Blockbuster had no answers for them. And that, and that was Blockbuster's first financial crisis. And that happened in the mid-90s. That was before Netflix even existed. Uh, so, and, and then obviously the story is that Blockbuster never did anything successfully against Netflix. Now, now Blockbuster will tell you differently and we can get into the details of that. And certainly they never successfully competed with the kiosk industry. So any, any competitor that came along that challenged Blockbuster, there is not a doubt in the facts anywhere that Blockbuster did not successfully compete with any of them. And this was long before streaming, which didn't even start till 2007 and really wasn't legitimate business until well after 2010. After Blockbuster had already filed bankruptcy. Right.
0: One thing I like about, well, many things I like about the book, it's thorough, it's complete and I there are a lot of things I did not know about the very beginning. So, I mean, there is an origin story uh, to Blockbuster. What What is the Reader's Digest version of the pre Hizinga era and then when he bought it? And then what, what was his objective when he uh, bought it from the original Blockbuster founder? We'll be right back. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
1: Well, the, the, and, and people that are old enough will remember this back in the 80s when the video business began. Uh, it really started on the backs of a lot of really creative entrepreneurs, uh, because the VHS tape, which was, which was what, you know, the, the medium at the time, uh, studios were selling, selling movies on VHS tape. They didn't intend them to be rented. They tried to stop the industry from, from even starting all, going all the way to the Supreme Court to try to stop it. Um, uh, so in those early days, because of the legality questions, the, the industry did not attract any big capital. Uh, no, no retail companies got into it. It was a bunch of just entrepreneurial types, many whom didn't have any experience whatsoever in running a business or particularly retail. So the business got built up to a close to a $2 billion industry. On a whole lot of really small mom and top type, mom and pop type businesses, a handful of them were very well run. The majority were not. That and it started with bad real estate, uh stores that were not attractive, poorly lit, all these things. So, Blockbuster comes along, and a guy named David Cook in Dallas opened the opened the first one in Dallas. And and turned it into a more of a family friendly, bright lit, well lit, good locations, uh, attractive, fun to go into, with a whole lot more movies and a lot, you know, more friendly staff. Um, th- those those first handful of stores in Dallas were monstrous successes. And long story short, Wayne Heisinger and a team of his people who he he had just he had just left uh, waste management a couple of years before and had made his first fortune there. Uh, bought Blockbuster in uh, 1986 and uh, because he saw it as an industry that he could consolidate and the, the growth was really just starting and he didn't feel like he had any real good competition and the good competition that he did have, he would just buy. And that's exactly what he did. Did you ever meet him? And with
0: did, did you ever meet Wayne?
1: Uh, just to, just to shake his hand, because when I joined Blockbuster in 1993, he was on his way out, uh, and by 1994, it was gone, uh, so I didn't know him, uh, obviously a lot of the early franchisees knew him well and loved him, you know, because he, Wayne was a, you know, he was a, a, a huge personality, and, and, uh you know you 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 cannot argue with the way he spotted that opportunity and just jumped on it and you know was opening a more than a store a day for for what five or six years and and virtually every every one of them was successful because there just wasn't much legitimate competition out there and and it it was it was it was very very easy and the and the crazy thing is is that the uh cause of some accounting questions back then you would understand this more than me Wall Street didn't understand a rental right. business of this size right. and they continued to question whether or not he was even making any money although the cash flow was tremendous and, and all of us that knew about these stores understood that you you could open up a, a video store in those days blindfolded and make three or four hundred thousand dollars a year off of it Yet Wall Street is questioning it and, and wondering whether or not it's profitable. Which is
0: ridiculous. I mean, uh, the, the number yeah, all you have to yeah. do is look at the cash flows. You even state a typical store a million dollar top line and, like you said, about a one thirty three percent EBT margin. And a lot of that cash flow, I think you have to rent uh, a video about twenty two, twenty three times, get your money back, and then after that, because all your other costs are fixed. <laughs> So pretty much, pretty much. I I have a couple, it's like, which, what quotes do I want to read of, of Wayne's? He says, this is an industry with an image problem, a fragmented industry of dimly lit stores and X rated movies. Uh, And then I think it was you that said, instead of investing in the stores to make them better, I think it did what he did best: buy things with the goal of transforming Blockbuster from a video rental company into an entertainment uh, conglomerate. He so his he even admit I build things. I don't. I'm not going to be the guy who figures out how to run them, operate them. So his. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was his natural instinct: grow, grow, grow. And then he probably took it as far as he could, and someone's was willing to write him a big check for it. Um, but it was the, the CEOs who came on after him who they did, they they didn't know how to operate the stores, as you said.
1: Yeah, it was a it was a cultural thing that somebody needed to completely do a one eighty on, and it just never happened. And and you know one of the big questions for I think for the franchisees and others who knew Wayne. Uh, they all wondered why he couldn't have identified a, a really top notch operator to come in and really run it for him. Uh, because that's what he needed. And, but he didn't understand the business well enough to know what he needed. And he never, he, you know, he did hire a couple of, in fact, he hired some, uh, a guy named Bosco from Toys R Us back then, uh, to, to come in and try to turn the blockbuster stores into more of a, of a retail operation. That was a disaster. And he fired him within about a year or so. Uh, so he, he made some kind of half-hearted attempts at, at bringing in some operators, but it just never worked. And, and, and the thing is, and we'll probably get into the HEB story, uh, is, cause that, that's where I learned it. And, and w- one of the things I like to, to remind myself of is that as great a company as H-E-B is, they could have never run a successful video rental business either. Uh, they couldn't have. And uh, it was a completely different mindset to traditional retail. And you had to get past that in order to do it properly. And a company like H-E-B, who's one of the best retailers in the world, they fought us all the time. And the only reason we were able to succeed was when they finally agreed, okay, you know what you're doing, we'll just leave you alone. If if they would have been a part of the major decisions, we would have never succeeded.
0: Point. One more thing before we move on. In fact, I do want to talk about H-E-B, which is the the very well-run grocery store chain. It's more of a regional firm, so not a lot of people probably know about it nationally. Yeah. But the first seven to eight years, uh, Blockbuster, they were spinning off so much cash. In fact, they were also making, they, they were generating so much cash flow. They were making some really bad uh, investments when they should have been investing internally with back office systems and uh, customer centric systems. But I just right. wanted to point out, too, that those first eight or nine years were just incredibly filthy. I mean, it was a it was an ATM machine. You put in a dollar, and you're getting like three dollars oh, yeah. back in, in in return. So you you mentioned right. HEB. So again, a very prominent, high quality, great grocery store chain. When I think of HEB, I'll use the analogy of In and Out Burger, probably one of the best run uh, burger chains in America. They're still private, uh, owned by Lindsey Snyder, I believe the, the name is they've chosen not to go the McDonald's route or the other big uh franchise organizations. HEB is again very well run, high quality, well thought of in its in its niche. So they started, I'd like to hear more about this. When did HEB decide to get into the video rental uh, business?
1: In the 80s, the rental business uh was just as much a part of the grocery store business as it was freestanding stores. Uh, you know, a lot of people rented videos back then. Uh, it was later on that the freestanding stores really became the dominant force, but so it was natural for a grocery chain like HEB to get into the video rental business, which it did in the early eighties. Uh, and. So they were, they weren't doing anything that any other, you know, the Safeways of the world weren't doing. Uh, but what they were doing is they were partnering with a guy to do it, and his name was Craig O'Donovich, who was a very successful entrepreneur, had, had a real good music store in, uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas, and had kind of come up with this formula of what he thought worked in the video rental business, and it was working in the grocery stores. And, uh, Blockbuster was just getting started back then, they only had about 20, 30 stores. And they started going to HUB to get real estate location because HUB owned a lot of real estate in, in central and South Texas. And somebody there, and we don't really know who, but somebody said, well, why don't we just do it ourselves? You know, why, we can do this. And the interesting thing is, is that they were the only retail company that I'm aware of. That decided to get into the business. And, uh, so, and a lot of it was because they had a lot of faith in Craig. Uh, so they had, they had, uh, so they decided to buy his company from them and they, and he brought his whole team on board and, uh, and, and challenged him to, 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 okay, we're going to build a freestanding store that's going to compete directly with this new blockbuster outfit that's just getting started. And, That's how I got into the business. I was running grocery stores at the time. And because Craig and his team didn't really have much familiarity with the HEB, you know, operation system, they asked me to go in and, and run the store part of it. So that's how I got into business. And that's how, that's where I learned the video business. And, you know, had I not learned it there, had I learned it at Blockbuster, I would have failed just like everybody else. Because I learned it from a completely different perspective from Craig and HEB than, than Blockbuster uh, thought about Please it. Please
0: forgive me if I get my facts incorrect here. Was it with Video Central where, if a Blockbuster came in across the street, you guys were still generating twenty-five thousand a week compared to their maybe eight or nine thousand a week?
1: Yeah, and that's where you know I I did that for seven years. Of every time we would open up a store across the street from a blockbuster, we would just destroy them. And, uh, and, and we could talk in as much detail as you want about how we did it. But the fact that the fact of the matter is, is that anytime we were competing with a blockbuster that was in close, close proximity, we were doing twice the That's volume. That's crazy. Than blockbuster. And, 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 and we were making a lot of money and doing they it. We were
0: idiots for not. I mean, I think you even said in the book they were not curious about their competition. They didn't respect their competition, and they weren't curious about them. And by the way, you're right. We are going to hit one of the areas where you were extraordinarily savvy. I'm trying to use a different word than successful because savvy is really a good word of why you were successful and Blockbuster was not I want to go to another firm real quickly. So we have Video Central. When did Hollywood Video come onto the scene? A little bit after, right?
1: Well, that's that's a huge part of the story because the only reason Hollywood Video was what it was is because they bought our stores. Okay. So, in, this was in this was in 1992. Charles Butt, who owns and runs HEB and still does uh decided in his own kind of private way that he wanted to be out of the video business, or at least he didn't want to grow it anymore. He didn't want to commit any more capital to it.
0: Did that make sense to you and at the time, we, or were you disappointed?
1: Well, we were all disappointed because we thought we were just getting started. We had a business model that we knew competed successfully against the biggest uh and we had decided that we, the next thing we were going to do is go to Charles and see if we could go into some new markets, uh, and really build this thing. And I think he was very uncomfortable with that. Uh, and I still don't know all the reasons why, because we had, we'd already made him a lot of money. Uh, and he wasn't, he didn't say, I'll oh, sell this at whatever cost. He just said, let's, let's look around and see what we can get. And, and, uh, and a guy named Alan Markert, who was the who was the treasurer of HUB at the time, was kind of in charge of doing that. And uh, long story short, Blockbuster wasn't interested, which was really crazy.
0: <laughs> I was going to uh, use a different word. and
1: Yeah, didn't e- didn't even get to the point of looking at the financials, because as I la- later learned, they were convinced that because we were a part of a grocery company, we were operating on two or three percent profit margin. Which was obviously not the case. <laughs> we were operating on similar margins that Blockbuster was, 20 to 30%, depending on the, on the, on the location. And, uh, so we were extremely profitable. Blockbuster was convinced we weren't. And I think that's pr- the primary reason they never got past one conversation with HUB about buying us. And then Mark Waddles, who had just started Hollywood Video in Portland, Oregon, had about 15 stores at the time, had been watching us very closely, knew that we were successful against Blockbuster, and said, hey, I'll buy them, go public, and ramp this thing up nationally, which is exactly what he did. Within five years, he had over a 1,000 stores open uh, all over the country, and most of them targeted Blockbuster
0: stores. And it impacted them directly, Right.
1: Oh, it was devastating. Uh, the uh, they, they were every every Hollywood video that opened against a blockbuster would cut the cash flow of that store more than in half, and and there were things Blockbuster could have done to, to respond to it to minimize the damage, but they did nothing. Uh, so Hollywood was I just had had a you know just free reign to go all over the country. Find the blockbusters that were most successful, open up again across the street from them. And it was, and then they began, began to print money. Every, every place they opened was successful. And
0: as you clearly articulate in your book, this is a commodity business about the only way you can set yourself apart is price. However, Hollywood figured some things out that you also figured out later on. And we can save that if you want, but off the top of your head, what's maybe the one or two things Hollywood did that Blockbuster was not?
1: Well, they did what, they did what we did on a a little different, but, but for the most part, they, they were, they were committed to having more new releases in the stores than Blockbuster was. And that may sound kind of elementary nowadays, but back then it was was a big a big deal, uh, because movies cost over $60. And there were various ways to maximize your availability of those new releases, but Hollywood was much better at it than Blockbuster was. Probably the big, the the the, the bigger issue was all the catalog movies, and there was you know eight nine thousand key titles that every video store ought to have. Hollywood Video was renting those for less than half the price of a Blockbuster across the street. And generating more revenue out of it than Blockbuster was. Uh, so it, it just generated more traffic, uh, to the, to, to a Hollywood store than to Blockbuster. Hollywood would have better availability new releases and much cheaper older movies. And there was really no reason to go to the Blockbuster store across the street, which is what we found out, you know, back in the HUB days. In fact, it used to always upset me. That anybody would go to a blockbuster store that was competing with us across the street because we were better than they were. There was no, we were cheaper. We had better availability of all the and movies. More selection. But as you, as you know, some people just prefer the big name and they, they're in a habit and that's where they go. And some people didn't like the crowds in our stores. Uh, you know, that they would want to go to a much quieter, peaceful environment at Blockbuster across the street.
0: We glossed over a term, and I want to hit it one more time. When I first read your book, the term catalog was a new term for me. So that's an important term because Netflix figured that out early on, uh, too. So I think we can say catalog is older movies that people are going to be in.
1: Pretty much anything that's over over a year old.
0: Over a year. I was even thinking five or even longer and and
1: no it's and and the re- the reason is is because the the real life of a new release is just not very long sure. uh most most of the, of the of the of the back then it was rents now i guess it would be views but most of the views of of a, of a new release come in the first two or three months so so beyond that it's a it's a uh it's a it's a it's a different product
0: before before we talk some of uh uh, as we keep kicking the the dead horse before we hit some of the woes of blockbuster let's not forget your operation so at what point did you strike out on your own because that, that's an important part even in the story
1: yeah it's key it's, it's 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 key uh and so we got to talk about how I wound up at blockbuster yes. and i, I spent I spent 15 years at HUB, the last half of it running the video stores for them. Uh, but when, when Charles decided to sell our stores, which he did for about a million dollars a piece to, to Hollywood, um, I had a, I, I had a choice to make. I could either go with Hollywood, which most of the, of our management team did. I could stay at HUB and run grocery stores again, but. I got a third option just out of the blue. A blockbuster franchisee called me up and wanted to talk to me about running their operation. Uh, and they were located in in Austin, which was just a, an hour north of San Antonio, where I lived. So, I talked to them, and long story short, decided to do that. and And the reason was I saw a huge opportunity. These stores were owned by a prime cable uh, a prime cable uh, TV uh, cable television they're no, they don't. Lo, lo, no, no, they no longer exist, but they were big players back then. They owned Las Vegas, and they owned Alaska. They owned some of the Washington D.C. area. They owned some of Chicago. So they were pretty big players back then. Not 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 one of the top two or three, but they were very significant. And they had gotten into the into the video business and were struggling with it because they didn't really understand retail. So they hired me to come in there and I and and run it and. What my whole idea was combined the blockbuster name, which clearly was the dominant name in the industry, along with the with the with the business model that we had created at Hub, that we knew was was superior to Blockbuster, and so that's what I did. And within three or four months of get of taking those stores over and instituting our business model, we were the fastest growing franchise group in the system. And not by just a little, by a lot. So all of our, of our theories were proved, you know, we, we knew we had something and then we started trying to grow and we found that difficult because most of the, of the territory had already been bought and Blockbuster was really not a franchise organization. They were primarily, they wanted to own most of the stores. So we had very limited growth opportunity and eventually, uh, we did get up to 25 stores and eventually, uh, uh, Prime decided to sell those stores and I bought them in, in, uh, early 2000, uh, put the money together and bought them. And we, that, that's, th- so I got into the ownership of Blockbuster franchise stores very, very late in the game.
0: I was going to say after the Huizinga era.
1: Yeah. In 2000. Yeah. Uh, John Antiocho had been there for three years already. Uh, DVD was starting to take over. Uh, and really, a lot of the questions about you know how long have we got uh, were beginning to get asked. Understood. Uh, but I really believed in it, particularly because DVD was was really taking over the industry, and uh, so put the money together with mostly debt uh, to to buy the stores.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of the big issues with Blockbuster. I came down to four. I have three, but then I added, oh, you've got to bring up late fees, which will hit last. But uh, revenue sharing, I think any kid with an MBA, any, any new CEO is not going to do revenue sharing. Let, let's define revenue sharing in this context, in this industry, and how did it hurt Blockbuster?
1: Well there there's two distinct phases to revenue sharing in this in this story. Uh, and it starts with the fact that VHS tape, most of those movies cost sixty to seventy uh, dollars. And, um and like you said earlier, you had to rent it well over twenty times just to get your money back. Money back. There so so it was challenges challenging to stay in stock on new releases and you literally just had to accept the fact that for the first two or three weeks, you couldn't be in stock 100% of the time. You could do the best you could, but you were never going to be in stock 100% of the time. In those days, in some respects, revenue sharing was a legitimate alternative because you could get a lot of movies in the store. Uh, you'd have to pay a lot more for them. Uh, but it was, it was, it was not an, an, an unrealistic approach to solving that problem. But you had to accept the fact that it was going to hurt your margins. And because if you, any deal with these studios required you to buy a whole lot of movies that were terrible and, you know, they didn't even deserve to be in the stores, uh, you had a lot of dead product in the stores. But all that said, when John Antiaco came in in 1997 and, 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 instituted revenue sharing, it did solve a problem that Blockbuster had. I, in the book, I think I, I say it band-aided a problem. It didn't really fix it, but it, it did reverse the image of Blockbuster being really terrible at having new releases in stock in the first few weeks when you wanted them. Uh, it, it helped. Uh, but it did drive up their costs and reduce their margins. But in the situation they were in at the time, it helped turn the company around. The, the, I didn't, I never agreed with it and it, and there were other ways to do it, but it was hard to really fight it at the time because John did it and, and it, and it helped get the company turned around. The bigger, the bigger question is when DVD came along, it, because DVD was designed to be a sell direct to the customer product, The, the wholesale cost on it was less than $20. So all of a sudden, the cost of our product is reduced by two thirds. It, at that point. There's no reason. To me, it made absolutely no sense whatsoever to revenue share. None. I mean, you couldn't make a legitimate financial case for revenue sharing something you were paying $17 for. But John did it anyway. Uh, about four years into the release of DVD, for whatever reason, he decides to go back to revenue sharing. And long story short, where our margins improved and because we were not doing it by about 10 points, theirs just went back to where it was in the VHS days. And, uh, and along with that, they, the, the, the same problems arise. You know, if you're going to be on revenue sharing with, with warner brothers you got to buy everything and and that means bringing in a bunch of stuff and committing dollars to 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 movies that don't fit the store or were so terribly made they should have never been in there in the first place so anyway that's and you being a cfo that that's probably why you keep well my first first
0: thought was fire the cfo where was where was he or she uh during the DVD DVD era of revenue sharing, it's like that's just ridiculous. I don't, for the reasons you mentioned,
1: I, I don't I I still don't understand. I, I do know one thing, and you know I I never it, this occurred to me later on after I think after the book was already written that because because revenue sharing pushed out the dating on your on your tables right. They, that might have been the reason they did it because they, 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 when, when they shi- when they shifted from wholesale buying to revenue sharing buying, it, it freed up hundreds of millions of dollars in cash in the company. But it was only a one-time fix and, and it was creating a longer-term problem. Uh, so I think that might have had something to do with it because it freed up a ton of cash and, uh, but still it was just a it was a short-sighted decision that would haunt them forever and they never recovered from it.
0: You you already mentioned this a few minutes ago. I did not remember this until I went back and I was rereading my highlights, which by the way, in my Kindle version, I've got highlights on almost every other page. <laughs> uh, that's how much this book is how good this book is. But in going through my highlights again and prepping for this You'd stated, and I read that Blockbuster was not a franchise centric organization. I didn't i I just i mean here in Columbia, Missouri, we had two, maybe three blockbusters. One of them was a big a big store of footprint. I loved going into it. I just assumed. Uh, it was a franchisee. It,
1: it, I think it, think it was. I think it, I think Columbia Missouri was. And in fact, I think it was the. I think it was Bobby Cox's group uh, that that owned it, and they ran it. They ran good. Stores. And
0: they did have a big catalog because it was fun yeah. just looking at old movies. So it got to be where we probably rented as many older movies as some of the newer releases, but because. They were not franchise centric. The ones owned by Blockbuster, they did not have that depth of older titles. You guys, when you're running your Blockbuster stores, you were buying because the DVDs were a lot lower in cost, as we just said. You were expanding your selection and it was keeping your sales high. In fact, higher than anywhere else uh, within the, the Blockbuster organization. I just don't get it why Blockbuster didn't go that route of expanding its selection.
1: It, it, I, well, they didn't, it, it, not just they didn't expand it, they actually shrunk they it. They shrunk it. And that's what was, yeah, they, the. in fact, I think that in this era of Blockbuster, which is the early 2000s, um, the, the foundation for their failure was laid right then because you can't get more basic than you got to have sufficient inventory to run a good business. Blockbuster never did. And the, 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 the problem came when there was DVD was introduced in 1997 and, and it took it about, it took about seven years to completely Transition from VHS to DVD, but everybody knew that's what was going to happen. You know, you, you had, you had a, a, a several year period in there where you had to satisfy, keep your VHS customers satisfied while you were transitioning those people that bought DVD players over to a new format. It was an incredibly challenging time, uh, because you couldn't just lower your VHS inventory because you still had you know, half the customers want those. Well, we didn't have a footprint or shelf space in the stores adequate to do all this. We were having to, to, to satisfy two distinctly different customer bases. Blockbuster never looked at it that way. Uh They, so... They, in fact, you would walk into one of our stores, and the right side would be DVD, and the left side would be VHS, because we knew that's what our customers wanted. You walk into Blockbuster store, and they were all mixed together. Uh, it was a completely different approach, and the fact is, is that as as the as as the format changed from VHS to DVD, Blockbuster never made a commitment to completely replacing the VHS inventory with with the new DVDs. And they never did and they never replaced it. We did and not only replaced it, expanded it because what was going on with Netflix and a lot of other changes at the time, customer tastes were expanding. They weren't shrinking. They were expanding. And, and, and Blockbuster was shrinking the number of titles they had in their stores. And to somebody outside of Blockbuster, they would have never known that, especially Wall Street. You know, Wall Street would find all kinds of other things to complain about, but they would never deal with something so fundamental as Blockbuster's got half the number of titles in their stores now than they did five years ago. Which to me was just, we got that, that's the foundation of this problem. And as I say in the book, uh, Blockbuster didn't kill Blockbuster. Blockbuster killed Blockbuster. DVD was the weapon of choice. And that was the beginning of it because they never had a sufficient inventory to run a profitable store.
0: Let's peel the skin back about two or three layers. I was with family over the, the weekend, and we, the, the conversation came up. Heavy dialogue movies. So my pick, one of my favorites, Crimson Tide with Denzel Washington and Jing Hackman. Oh, great soundtrack as well. So I know the answer to this question. How many times was Crimson Tide ever leased at your store? And I know the answer to that. And I know the why to that, too. How many times was it rented? Yeah, in in any of your stores. I don't know the
1: exact number, but I know that's one of the titles that rented a lot through the years. The reason I bring, but I could give you some, I, I could give you some other titles that, that were evergreen as well. I was going
0: to say in your stores, yeah, one of the big differences between Netflix and Blockbuster is Netflix was so, as and again, I'm using your words, obsessed. I mean, obsessed with customer centric data, whereas Blockbuster wasn't. So they had to. Be. They didn't have the the customer centric systems or the back office support like Netflix did. And again, that's another investment that they chose not to make for reasons just don't make sense to me. And, and I'm sure you're still scratching your head about that.
1: There, I, I still don't understand it. And I'll, I'll use this example that I, that I use in the book, uh, You know, we're talking about new releases and catalog. It's it's complete. It's it's two completely different product groups. They have to be managed completely separately. It's best example I could come up with with my grocery background would would be, you know, dry grocery, high volume, low margin business where you just turn in inventory versus one of the perishable departments, meat or or produce, where it's it's a higher margin business uh, that's 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 perishable. It's a completely different business to run within under in the same building. Uh, that's what new releases and catalog were in a video store. It was co- two completely different management approaches to running it. When I first got to, to to Blockbuster, one of my first questions is, "Give me the report that breaks it down." Tell me how many new releases are renting in the store versus how many catalog movies are renting in the store. Give me the inventory, give me the titles, give me the rents. It did not exist. It did not exist. They could not tell you and never could. When the Blockbuster stores closed, the last ones closed in 2014, they could not print out a report to you and say, here's how many new releases are renting and here's how many catalogs are renting. They never could. It, now they could break it down by title, you know, and, and, you know, mine the data and get it for you, but it was never in an actionable report because they didn't care. So versus, versus Netflix, who very early on knew that mailing DVDs through the mail and because of the inefficiencies of that, that they could not build a business that was dependent on new releases. They couldn't. Mark Randolph describes it specifically in his book, one of the co-founders of Netflix. And it was true. There was no way they could compete with Blockbuster on availability of new releases just because of the inefficiency of going, of going through the mail. Right. So they knew if they were going to have a successful business, they had to convince their customers that to be fine with of those movies we're going to send you, Not many of them are going to be new releases. They're going to be older titles. But oh, by the way, they're just as good. And we know what you want to rent. We know what you want to watch. So we're going to send you the stuff you want to watch. They got very, very good at it, uh, down to the, to title level where Blockbuster wouldn't even, what wasn't even concerned about it on a group level. So Netflix became experts of what their customers wanted to watch. Blockbuster never.
0: There are two other woes. I'll let you pick which one you want to talk about. Uh, there's Redbox, which I'd completely forgot about. The impact Redbox, or maybe we should say kiosks in general, had yeah. a blockbuster. And then there's the oh yeah, the late fees. Pick, pick, pick. You, you get to pick. <laughs> yeah. Flip a coin which which one of those you want to talk about, the kiosks or the late fees.
1: Well, late, late fees, I think is, is the, is the bigger issue. I mean, they're both big, but late fees was, uh, the class example of, of, uh, you know, just unforced error. Uh, and, and the people that remember the days of late fees and how they all got bashed and people were so negative about it, they would say, well, didn't Blockbuster have to eliminate late fees? And I would say, well, does that mean Hertz rental cars gotta let you keep a car as long as you want? You know, uh, it's a good time to talk about it because everywhere you go right now, you can see the impact of the supply chain. Right. It It's, it's, it's been damaged through COVID and other issues, and it's going to take a long time to fix it. Uh, the, any rental business is unique in the fact that the customer becomes a part of the supply chain. Yes, it just does, and and you can argue that all day long. But the fact is, the customer is a part of the supply chain. If they don't bring the movies back on the in in time, they can't they can't contribute to the flow of efficient revenue in a in a store. Well, well, ne- well- that's why late fees were created.
0: I was going to say Netflix figured out that supply chain thing early. They realized that every well, they
1: did it with what they did it with a subscription. I was going to say where if even if you don't watch anything, you're still going to pay us.
0: It was just it was just a
1: different approach to do the same
0: thing. I was just going to say everyone's house, the the the, the DVDs in the apartment or the houses where those were being rented, that was the warehouse for Netflix, right? In, right. Instead of this big distribution center, so. Right. I I I interrupt. They
1: were approaching it from a different a totally different perspective. They were going, okay, we're not going to charge you late fees, but we're going to lock you in to a to a monthly fee that we're going to charge you regardless of how many movies you rent. And they figured out a way that that business model would work.
0: You guys got the narrative right where you continued to charge late fees. You explained to your customers Here's why we have to do this, and weren't you only doing this on new releases? You weren't doing this for all videos, were you? You personally? No,
1: it, uh, all for all. Yeah, uh, there were late fees that tr- that charged to everything because because uh, catalog was renting, and you know they they weren't they didn't cost you very much because we rented re- we rented for a, a dollar for for five nights, so late fees were twenty cents a day, which was not a big deal. Uh, most of the late fees uh, revenue was generated from new releases because, you know, those were the more expensive tiles in the store. Uh, but I think that, I think the numbers proved it. Most customers understood that late fees were necessary, but they just had to be managed in a friend, uh, in a customer friendly way. Uh, and instead of changing it, to, to a more, more customer friendly approach. Blockbuster just decided, well, we're just going to do away with it. It is still the stupidest business decision I've ever seen. There was no way it could work. None. Uh, and they, and, and the guys, John and others that were involved in that decision w- would argue it otherwise, but there's no way they can p- point to any numbers to justify what they did. And I'd like to point out that they did it based on one test one that was tenth. inconclusive in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, and they would tell you otherwise now, but that is not true. Uh, unless they did it and never told us because, uh, they did, and Chattanooga is not a big city. Uh, and they wouldn't even tell us all the numbers the the, the impact of, of the test. It was not a legitimate test by any Standard, yet they used that as their one justification for doing it on a national scale. And what they did is they, not only did they give up about $300 million in revenue, but most importantly, they lost total control of their inventory, which was the, which was the much bigger issue. And they fought that decision till the day they closed their last door. But as most CEOs will do, they'll figure out a way to, to say, well, you know, it was the right decision there. No, it was the it was a horrible decision.
0: This book has a great bookend. I loved the way you wrapped up with the lessons, the business lessons at the end. You also give your guiding principles for the organization that you ran instead of reading through all those lessons. Let, let's say you're speaking to a group of uh, MBA students there at the University of Texas or some some large university, what's going to be one of the first things that you tell these young students who are going to go and start, either start a business or be a CEO or be a chief marketing officer? What's one lesson that you've pulled out of this Blockbuster debacle that every young person should hear?
1: I, I, I think Blockbuster is the classic case of, of a high growth company that never committed to transitioning to a operating company. Uh, and, and I think virtually every company has to do that eventually. You can't stay high growth forever. Uh, and by the time Blockbuster was 10 years old in the late nineties, what they needed to do was be honest and say, you know, there, there's not double digit growth out there anymore because there just wasn't there was no way you could make a case for it unless you were going to branch into another business and that's another story blockbuster tried to do that and none of it worked blockbuster they they never committed to being to being really to running the the best stores they could possibly run while they planned to move into streaming which everybody knew was going to eventually be the, the bigger business uh, they never made a commitment to transitioning from growth to operating. And, and interestingly, you're seeing the same thing with Netflix right now. Uh, you know, they got a lot of years of, of really free growth yes. because the studios didn't take them seriously. Now that they've got all this legitimate competition, they can't continue to grow like they have grown the last 10, 15 years. And they're, they're going to have to come clean at some point and say, yeah, it's not there. But we can still be number one, and we can be very profitable doing it. Uh, but Blockbuster Lock, would never acknowledge that.
0: One question you may not know the answer to, but I'm curious: we talked about video rental being a commodity. Is streaming now becoming a commodity, in your opinion? And does do the Netflixes of the world? You know Disney has their their uh, network. Uh, obviously, HBO's been around for a while, and they're now streaming their own uh, custom content that they've created. Is commoditization impacting those guys?
1: I, I think by definition, it's not a commodity because every every movie is different. The the difference now is that Netflix, where they had all the virtually all the titles during their strong growth years. Because the studios happily sold them the rights at very attractive prices to rent all those movies. Uh, they're gradually losing those rights now. So Netflix is just another studio, really. Uh, they've got to produce most of their own content now to, to have on their, on their platform. And, uh, so where technically it's not a commodity. Because every movie's different. Good point. Uh, they're still in the same business, and and Netflix doesn't have the advantage that they used to have by having virtually every movie that anybody wanted to see. Now they're all divided into what five or six different primary streaming companies. Good point. So where and and that's an interesting point. You know, the a video store in the '90s was the aggregator. We had a we had everything. For a while, Netflix had almost everything. Now they don't. So now it's all divided up again, uh, which is the way the studios want it. And, and it, and I'm sure it will never change. There's never going to be a, an aggregator that has virtually everything.
0: Last question we ask every guest what some of their favorite books are. I see a bookcase behind you. Are, are you a reader, Alan?
1: I am a reader. I'm not as much in recent years as I used to be, but yeah, I'm a reader. What are uh, what are
0: some of your favorites off the top of your head? I, I'm
1: a uh, I'm a I'm a history buff, and I, I particularly like to read uh, historical fiction. So uh, authors that that I love are uh, Stephen Ambrose, who died a long time ago, but but. Uh, Wrote, wrote a great book called Undaunted Courage about Lewis and Clark and several war books. In fact, he was, he was behind, he was behind Band of Brothers. Uh, David McCullough has written a whole bunch of great books. Uh, uh, my favorite probably is John Adams. Um, uh, and a great, uh, historical, uh, fiction writer is, uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff Shara. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of Jeff Shar, but he's written a series of books about World War II, World War One, Civil War. Did he do uh um,
0: did he did he do uh Killer Angels? Or am I thinking of some? Somewhat- his
1: father did Killer his Angels. Father his did father Killer did Killer Angels, Killer Angels okay. and then he and then he his father died. And he picked up this series and turned it into a huge success. I think his father's name was was Mike.
0: That's Schar. right. That's right. Yeah.
1: You know, on the on the business side, uh, you know, I think in recent years probably the Jim Collins books probably had most influence on me, hence the title of my book, Built to Fail instead of built built to right. last. Uh, and you know, if you, if you go back a few years, uh in fact I pulled uh I I pulled it out. This book right here might have had more influence on me than anything. It's called Focus. Focus. And it was written in the mid nineties and it, and it was that it was a story of companies that succeed by being better than everybody else because they're focused on one industry or one product or a group of similar products. Uh, that book probably had more influence on my thinking than anything because we, through the years, we've seen it happen. Any company that starts trying to divert, divert into businesses that they don't understand. Most of them fail at it. Um, and another great book is called Nuts, which is the story of Southwest Airlines, and it's the best accounting of it. And I'm a Herb Kelleher fan. He's my business hero, always has been. And that's, that's the best book that's ever been written about Southwest Airlines.
0: When you said yes to this interview, I was, I was thrilled. Because I was I had a hard time putting this book down. I don't know what you call a Kindle book when it's a page turner a uh, a a flip turner uh, but again, you ought to see my Kindle. it's like every other page highlights highlights. I usually save red for the really important notes. Well, there's a lot of red uh, in my book too so i I really truly hope this book has A long shelf life. As I said earlier, every CEO should read this book. CFOs obviously should read it. If you're a chief marketing officer, yes. Anyone in operations, people in data science. uh, I I would think that Netflix employees, (laughs) I I would think there'd be a a large group of them that should read this, if not already. And, and obviously, you've heard me say MBA students should be reading this. this you, you've done a great job. You said this is your first book. Well done, sir. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. I mentioned this a few minutes ago with Alan, but he ends the book with seven lessons from the story of Blockbuster. I'm going to read them real quickly. Uh, Number one, clearly define your company's purpose, its mission. Now, it may seem so obvious, but not so obvious to Blockbuster. Number two, identify what drives your business and pursue it relentlessly number three measure what matters because they didn't number four respect and learn from competitors and in the book and we talked about this in the interview blockbuster was not curious about its competitors Number five, if you're going to do it, be the best. It's one thing to grow fast, but at some point, be the best. Number six, in difficult times, rely on the fundamentals to survive. And the part in this book I especially liked was a section where Alan talks about his business, his blockbuster stores. They relied on the fundamentals, and guess what? They worked for many years. And then number seven, don't just talk about the future, plan for it. I do not give many business books five stars. This book gets five stars. Built to Fail by Alan Payne. And again, Alan, thank you very much. Great, great book. Hey, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Margandy for... CFO bookshelf.